good morning today here on Fuzzy Logic. We're going to talk about a topic that is quite difficult and can be quite confronting. Now, we all agree, I think, on uh, that we can handle most of the insults of ageing, uh, what it means to have parts of your body that you want to get smaller, get bigger, and the places where you want to grow hair, lose it, and the place where you don't want it start to sprout. But one thing I think we would agree also that uh, is very confronting, very challenging, is when we lose our marbles. And today on Fuzzy Logic, our theme is dementia. And what does it mean for a person to have dementia? What can we do about dementia? And I'm very pleased to welcome into the studio a couple of people who put a lot of energy into helping people with dementia and the families, people around them. Amy Nussio and your occupational therapist from the University of Queensland. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Ron. And uh, Nathan DeCuna, and you are a PhD candidate, and you are also working with the University of Queensland and Amy on this project to help people with dementia. Good morning, Nathan. Good morning. Now let's let's kick off by the fairly a fairly naive, fairly basic question of what dementia actually is. What is it? Because I suspect it's not just a simple thing. It's a whole cluster of symptoms. Yeah, that's right, Rod. Um, So dementia, it's actually a a spectrum of neurodegenerative diseases, and it affects the regions of our brain that are are crucial for thinking, memory, attention, and the ability to perform everyday tasks. Um, Normally, dementia affects our brain enough to interfere with our normal social or working life. And like you said, it's actually an umbrella term for over 100 conditions. And Alzheimer's disease is actually the most common form, but there are other forms such as vascular dementia, uh, Lewy body dementia, and Parkinson's dementia as well. Oh, Parkinson's? So is that where you get the shakes? Uh, yes. Yes. I think so, yeah. Okay, so what are the main sort of symptoms? How would you know perhaps if well, somebody you were talking to and you thought, um, something's not quite right? So the the types of early symptoms that you'll notice uh, that a person living with dementia will notice or their family may notice is that their short-term memory changes. So they're more frequently forgetting information that they normally wouldn't forget. There may be uh, some confusion around tasks that are normally an automatic part of everyday life. And that changes to their personality as well, so acting in ways that are different to how they've acted in the past. They may become withdrawn, more apathetic. So you might see them forgetting to get on the bus, take their medication, uh, fluffing their intro lines on the radio perhaps? Could be those sort of things, absolutely. Yes, so things like forgetting to take medication can be a common uh, challenge and things like uh, getting phone, phone calls with information, so scheduling appointments over the phone and then not remembering that detail uh, later in the day. And is navigation one of those things as well? Absolutely, and a lot of the uh, work that Nathan and I do is looking around supporting people with early dementia in relation to driving, and navigation is a big part of driving, so getting from A to B where a person might have automatically got in the car and went to the local shops, they may be finding they're needing to really think harder about that. Do I turn left here? Do I turn right? How do I get to those familiar oh, okay. places? Okay, so we're going to talk at some length about the, the, the driving aspect and the ability to get around. But just like to go back a little bit more to the basics of dementia, 
Do we know, or how much do we know about the causes of dementia? Okay, so the, the cause of dementia is very multifaceted. Um, the original hallmark theory uh, was the amyloid beta cascade hypothesis, and this is where this excess amyloid plaque accumulates between the neurons in our brain, which can kill off some of these neurons and lead to neuronal cell death. So a, a plaque being like as in the blood plaque or, or something similar? Yeah, that's right. So amyloid plaques are found uh, systemically, but then in the brain, they can accumulate around these neurons and cause inflammation and lead to neuronal cell they're, death. They're sticky cells, aren't they? Is that right? Pla yeah. Are they platelets or am I, am I on the right track? No. Mm. No, you're shaking the head. They're not platelets. <laughs> Yeah, but the, the thing is, that's not really the only contributor to uh, whether we get dementia. That's received a lot of focus, and a lot of the focus on drug trials has been around removing this plaque. Mm -hmm. uh, but we now know that there's a number of different things that... Uh, oh, so it's can... more than just that. That's right. So things like genetics, um, infectious, infectious agents are getting a lot of uh, attention at the moment oh, okay. as a potential yeah. uh, cause of Alzheimer's and dementia pathology. Uh, things like chronic stress, inflammation... Uh, blood-brain barrier dysfunction as well. But um, what I'm more interested in in my research is the potential of these modifiable lifestyle risk factors mm -hmm. uh, that can potentially reduce the disease burden. So looking at things like diet, uh, physical activity, social connectedness, uh, reducing depression levels, and also linking into navigating like we were talking about today, being able to, to get around and remain independent as well. So whether these types of things can help delay the progression of dementia or put it off later into life. Okay, so we won't talk too much about the clinical aspects of this because you're not, you're not clinicians, and, but I, I think there are some drug treatments, and, uh, but that's not the focus of our thing. It's things that... I guess what you're saying is you aren't completely out of control. You, there are some things you can do in your life, and maybe perhaps even substantial things that you can do for yourself and for your family if you are facing a dementia situation. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> Short answer, yes. Okay, so we are going to be talking a little bit more about that. And now, this, this program, Amy, that mm. you and uh, Nathan are both working on is called the Car-Free Car Car Me. Me. Yes. Let's, let's start with the trigger of that. So now my mother, who is about to turn 90 in a few yeah. months, uh, is a highly intelligent woman, and recently she has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Mm. So she's in early stages of Alzheimer's, yep. but she's had to give up her car. Mm, yeah. And largely for her, that's been a symbolic thing because it's a tangible sign that she's now facing dementia. Absolutely, Alzheimer's. yeah. Uh, but there's also the practical side. So yeah. what, what, what can somebody like her do? There's a number of things she can do, and her experience isn't uncommon that driving is often described as that um, straw that broke the camel's back, that difference between feeling independent and feeling that the symptoms of dementia are really impacting someone's independence. It's a milestone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So our research is looking at ways to support people like your mum to maintain her level of activity in the community without relying on driving. 
And a large focus of our research is providing that support early so people can get systems and habits in place of ways to get around in the community that aren't driving. And that's a big part of the Car Free Me program is providing education to people around the alternate transport options that are available and getting people familiar with using those in the early stages of um, their dementia diagnosis so they have those habits. So you've got the psychological aspect and we say the milestone, it's a very tangible indicator that you're... Absolutely. I don't know if it's a good term, but you're losing your marbles. Uh, But then there's the practical side. How do I get around? Yeah. And it's not just you, is it? Or the person with the dementia. It's everybody around them. Yeah, yeah. So when a person living with dementia needs to transition to stopping driving, it can have a variety of impacts on their carers. So some carers will need to take up a lot more of a driving role. So they will need to factor in scheduling, assisting the person they care for with getting to the places they need to go. Or it may be that the carer relies on their partner, the person living with dementia, to get around. The carer doesn't drive, so they have to adapt to that situation, uh, which can have its challenges as well. And carers often reflect it's a really difficult conversation to have, uh, to to talk to the person living with dementia around their driving and around planning to stop driving. Um, Yes, I can imagine it's a bit like uh, obesity. And you notice the person is putting on a lot of weight, and how do you say that without loading them up with the guilt? Yeah, absolutely. So thinking about ways of uh, having those conversations uh, at a time where it's objective and it's looking at the person's driving skills rather than questioning the person as an individual and making plans for alternatives. So can a person get support with that kind of discussion? Absolutely. There's uh, the Car Free Me program. Part of the role of the program is to support provide support for carers in terms of how to have that discussion around uh, supporting the person living with dementia with transitioning to stopping driving. And there is also other support programs around. Obviously, the GP can provide some support, um, places like Dementia Australia. And also, there's some really objective measures. So the licensing requirements obviously dictate some of the... Yes. um, Let's talk about the licensing and actual mechanics of driving in a moment. But... uh, is it a benefit to have sometimes a neutral person, say, not a, not a family member, saying, listen, mum, you've got dementia? <laughs> Can you, these services do that kind of stuff? So you, you bring your, your family member in and say, I want you to explain to them and to us what does this mean? Absolutely, and that's a big objective of the Car Free Me program is to empower the person living with dementia to understand all the facts Mm -hmm. and to be given that information in a supportive environment. So objectively understanding how the symptoms can impact driving and how that can lead to having to make those decisions around whether driving is safe, to take the pressure away, as you say, from family members needing to do that, and equally also to take the pressure off people like general practitioners. So. Um, where a person's been seeing the same GP for many, many years, the GP doesn't want to compromise that rapport they've got by um, broaching such a challenging issue. Which yes, is... so there's also the aspect of having a person of authority to say mm. something to you. Mm. If it's just a family member or a friend or something, then it's, it can be just viewed as an opinion or there's all that baggage of the a personal relationship. What, what's the 
longer-term trajectory of a person. Nathan, you, you, you say that there are many types of dementia and many causes. Uh, it, I, I would guess that you would say that predicting the, the, the course of a person diagnosed with dementia is very hard to say. Is that right? Yeah, it's going to be uh, highly individualised um, you know, based on you know, when the person receives their diagnosis or even how long some of the pathology has been present. And also it can depend on things like their cognitive reserve and education levels and their social connectedness, um, how active are they out in society or are they more sedentary and staying at home. So there's just so many different things that can impact whether one has a sharper uh, cognitive decline as opposed to you know, living quite a long time uh, with a dementia diagnosis. Yeah, and of course there's the type of dementia, I guess, too. Some types would be, I guess, a slow burn. Then there is early onset dementia, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. And one of the uh, more alarming things is that uh, younger onset dementia rates uh, may be increasing at the moment. Um, this refers to people under 65 years of age. Um, so that is coming up um, more commonly at the moment. And definitely this is something that Dementia Australia are really focused on, providing support for people and carers and spouses Do we of people have with any, younger onset. Uh, any theories as to why it might be increasing in the younger population? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, there's many different factors. I think, um, I mean, our lifestyles are changing. Um, we so, are living... So more sedentary? Um, that that's, could be one of the factors. Um, our, our diets are changing. Um, we're more... Uh, currently, we're more... Sorry, I've lost the words. Um, but, yeah, so there are many things that may be contributing to it. Um, like I said, there's genetics. Uh, we really don't really know why there it's is more probably very hard. <laughs> it's probably I guess it's very hard over a population to to know because there's so many confounding things mm. and, and it's, you can't do a clinical trial where you isolate one person and, and change their, their factors because yeah. th that's probably epidemiology really a, a very difficult area of study because you, there are mm. so many things you can't control. Mm. Uh, okay. And so now the, 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 the path of a person with, with dementia can, can vary enormously, but generally is it, it's just a downward decline and what's the end state? What's the end point of dementia in, in the worst case? I, I, I can recall staying with a great aunt Mm. and she couldn't speak even, mm. and so on. What, what have you seen, Amy? I guess, again, it's a situation where each person's uh, situation is different and individual in terms of the impact of the symptoms later in their diagnosis. Our focus is really on capturing people early in right. their diagnosis and providing those supports. In the later stages, often people will need a high level of support with their care, so being able to perform the everyday tasks in terms of showering, dressing can become more challenging and that's where there's often that connection with residential care. So those developmental skills around and managing... That's further down the track. Yeah, the so... You're engaging in, yeah, in yeah. Care, uh, car 
Free me. Exactly. So we're really engaging people with a very early dementia diagnosis or even um, symptoms of dementia. They may not have the formalised diagnosis and trying to provide education and support so that they can feel empowered to knowing the facts around how dementia can impact on driving and that they can take a proactive approach to managing their own safety uh, because our goal is to support people to drive as long as they're safe but to make sure that they stop driving before they become unsafe. Yes, well, well driving is such a, an important part of our society. Absolutely. You just go to the shops, you go to the doctor, you go to visit your friends and yeah. so on. Yep. And when a person loses that, that's a really... That's a really big loss. Yes. One, yeah. one gentleman said to me he felt like his legs had been cut off because, as you say, it is that spontaneous capacity to be independent in our community. There's no planning needed to jump in a car and go where you want, when you want. Mm. So it's a big adjustment. And you take it for granted very easily. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. Uh, well, I think we probably underestimate just how complicated a task something like driving actually is. Absolutely, yeah. All right, so we, we might cut to a brick, uh, quick music track here on Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM. Don't forget to subscribe because uh, we really need your help to keep our station going. It's very expensive and my, my fees, my personal fees are <laughs> enormous. Uh, I'm going to double them from zero to whatever double zero is here on Fuzzy Logic. A bit of bit of Nick Cave and our guest today we're talking dementia with Amy Nusio and Nathan DeCuna. Uh now just before we go into our next question, I might mention quickly some books at the moment because uh, one actually is quite relevant to what we're talking about today and it's a book about memory. And it's quite a good read and I think actually our guests uh, Amy and Nathan you might enjoy this. It's called uh, diving with seahorses and it's about how uh, memory works published by University of New South Wales Press and all sorts of interesting stories about how our memory operates and for example in crime uh, and the, the, the classic uh, interview technique on criminal shows is where the detective wants to elicit the confession you do this, so we knew that you did this and so on and they're, they give a really interesting story about how there was a case where they used that technique and the person confessed. They they confessed their, to their terrible crime, which they had not done. Right. And the reason they confessed was because they felt obliged. The, the interview technique was so manipulative... That, that they they gave in almost they surrendered so real interview technique is designed to elicit what the person actually knows without skewing the information mm. a, anyway that's a really that's yeah. a really good read sounds it's, interesting yeah it's called uh, diving with sea horses by University of New South Wales Press and I have to mention a couple of other books while I'm here. Sorry, can't help it. Don't forget the Best Australian Science Writing Anthology 2018. It features a piece with Ask Fuzzy in it. <laughs> Woohoo! That lots of fun. So that's out in the bookshelves at the moment. And my book will be coming out in 2020, and it's called Ten Journeys 
on a fragile planet and we'll give you plenty more about that but it's it's the stories of people working in the environment in Australia anyway enough for the plug back to the dementia story and car driving and the car free me program uh, how does it work Amy what happens when someone approaches you or first of all when do they approach you uh- so the Car Free Me program is open to people who are still driving as well as people who've retired from driving. So we're keen to engage with people at any point in their um, early um, dementia journey. So even at that point when a person's first been diagnosed with dementia, that's a great opportunity for us to connect with them, if, even if they're still driving, to talk about future planning. So we're not only interested in talking to people who have stopped driving and supporting them with that transition, we're also really interested in working with people who are still driving. Who, But they know in their future. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. the, the reality, every person living with dementia will need to stop driving at some point. So looking at planning for that early on in the disease when particularly when a person has the insight to recognize the symptoms and how they may those symptoms may impact driving down the track and it's probably helps rather than making it a sudden chop yeah yeah and within the research that we have done with the University of Queensland our colleagues have done a lot of interviews with people who've retired from driving and their reflections were that there was that uh, instinct to not talk about it, to close up, and then that did lead to what you described as that sudden chop. And in hindsight, it is much better to start having open conversations and planning. It's probably very similar to the estate planning. Who's going to manage my estate when I'm when I'm gone? Yeah, absolutely. And we talk about that in the program that people do plan for certain components in life. We might plan for our financial future, our career progression, our retirement future, but we don't necessarily plan for concepts like retirement from driving, which can mean that it is a sudden and traumatic change. So part of the program is changing those habits uh, and encourage... And that's probably, I, I guess, a, a psychological benefit as much as anything because it's not a surprise when it happens. Absolutely. And the other thing is people will reflect they felt more empowered in the decision-making because they knew what was happening rather than all of a sudden the doctor said something and they walked out and couldn't drive home. Actually, uh, Amy, I think you've just used the key word there, uh, empower. It's about putting people in control. Yeah. And that makes a huge difference. So are you just going to be paddled along by fate and, and whatever happens to you, you are just the recipient? But if you take control of your own future, even with something like dementia, yeah, then yeah. that's a huge... A huge step, isn't it? Absolutely. The concept of having education and support to feel empowered. Our, our program doesn't have clinical drivers assessors, so we don't impact um, assessments about people's driving and recommend whether they should or shouldn't stop, but we empower them with the information so they know the facts. They can make assessments themselves about their abilities and when others, like their GP or health professionals, make assessments, they've got a bit of grounding as to how those... Yeah, that's hugely yeah. liberating. So what what is the actual trigger to stop driving apart from a person's own choice? 
Uh, there are a range of factors, and particularly in relation to the symptoms of dementia, there are some common signs that will indicate driving is no longer safe. So first of all, people often reflect that they're becoming more confused with navigating to familiar places, so knowing how to get from home to the shops and things like that. They may be more confused with the general road rules and road concepts, so recognising traffic lights, um, the indications for green and red and things like that. And another common change is spatial awareness, so recognising the position of themselves and their car in relation to other vehicles and judging speed. Well, that's a critical skill, isn't it? Because, Absolutely. Well, we're just getting the tramway coming through here in yeah, Canberra, and I'm yep. riding my bicycle across all the way here this morning, and there's cars from the left, there's cars from the right. That's right. There's a little chicane thing over the tramway. There's the pedestrian, there's the curb, and there's all these things. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of information going on. Absolutely, and that leads into reaction times as well when there is all that information happening around us. Not only do we need to judge what's happening and how it's happening in relation to each other, we need to react quickly. So people may notice that they're becoming more worried about driving, they're becoming more agitated, they don't want um, the radio on, um, they... So you get stressed because yeah. it's, it's difficult and it's a yeah. risky... It is a risky thing Absolutely. to be driving a car, let's face it, even if you're a uh, fleet of foot and yeah. able-brained. And many people uh, plan the transition to stopping driving independently, so the first steps might be changing their driving habits. They'll stop driving longer distances. For example, they might have used to gone to Sydney for specialist appointments where they'll now catch the train and they'll change their local routines. Yeah. They might do their shopping at midday rather than 9am so the traffic conditions are now, quieter. there's also a legal trigger... What happens then? Absolutely. So there are some mandatory requirements. There's a, a document called the um, Osroad Guidelines in terms of assessing fitness to drive, and that requires any licence holder who has a diagnosis of dementia to report the diagnosis to the licensing authority. And that's actually not that well understood. A lot of people think it's the doctor's responsibility to report the diagnosis, but it's the person themselves, the person living with dementia who has to report Just their diagnosis. Just quickly, is this what you call it, Oz? Oz roads, assessing Oz fitness to drive. Is that a nationwide, is it a state, because uh, traffic laws are state-based? So the document, uh, the booklet is nationwide, but the actual licensing requirements vary state to state. So in South Australia and Northern Territory, when someone's diagnosed with dementia, it is mandatory for the health professional, the doctor, to report them. Mm -hmm. uh, their diagnosis to the licensing authority, but in the other states, it's the license holder's responsibility. Okay. Yeah. All right. So now I've got a family member, like my mum, for mm. example, who I mentioned has early onset, or not early onset, she is late onset because she's nearly 90, but she's in early stage Alzheimer's, mm. had to give up her driver's licence, and if she wants help from Car Free Me, what, what happens then? So we would get her to, uh, we would try and connect with her. The ideal scenario is that she would ring us uh, so I can provide the phone contact details and the email details for the program and we would go out and see her to find out more about her situation uh, or at least our colleagues in Queensland would be a I bit... do a visit? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So at the moment, the project is being evaluated. The Car Free Me program is being evaluated as part of research. So as we would go out and visit her and explain the processes involved, and that involves us interviewing her 
uh, on a number of occasions over an eight-month period, as well as her participating in the seven-week Car Free Me program. Okay. So if I've, say, I've asked you to come and, and interview me, mm. what, what are you going to ask me? So we would first of all tell you exactly what the research involves and ask for your consent to participate in the research. Then we would ask you a number of questions about how you're getting out and about at the moment. So we'd like to get a picture of your community access. And your mobility. Yeah, yeah. And we do that by asking you questions, so almost like a diary record of what you've done in the last week. But we would also give you a phone that has a GPS app in it, and we'd ask you to carry that for the next seven days, and that provides a really objective measure of how much you're getting out and about. So we can objectively say uh, that Rod went out three times um, in a seven-day period, and Rod currently drives and lives on his own or um, oh, okay. and then we can provide the seven week car free me program and reassess those okay so um, you're, parameters. in other words you're getting an idea of their mobility requirements mm-hmm. and then you match the program to suit what their requirements are we we do that, yes, and we also assess the impact of the program in terms of mobility. So whether at the end of the program we can demonstrate in those interview uh, ideas and the data collection whether you start using buses more or whether you start using a community service, whereas perhaps the first time we interviewed you, each time you went out, you relied on a carer to take you, we might be able to introduce some other options. Okay. Now, Nathan, you you have a research background. You're doing a PhD at the University of Canberra and this program through University of Queensland. Uh, How do you approach the research side of this? Well, I think one thing that's really interesting about this program is not only does it give a lot of benefit to the participants and the carers, but there's just a great potential for this program to be implemented uh, within a clinical setting. So um, for GPs, healthcare professionals, occupational therapists, if they were able to prescribe something like this car-free me in practice, um, that would be really useful for them. So what the study is about is, and what we need participants for is to measure the effectiveness of this program, um, obviously be able to publish the results. Uh, the chief investigators publish it in a great journal, and then people can go look at these results and say, you know, maybe we need this in, in the clinical setting as well to help people going into the future. Right, okay, so it's putting substantive... This is evidence-based policy, isn't it? Absolutely, and as a background, the Car Free Me program has some great evidence supporting it. It was originally trialled in Queensland about 10, 15 years ago with older uh, people who did not have a dementia diagnosis, so the general older population, and there was some great evidence from that trial that people did use alternate transport options. People involved in the Car Free Me program started catching buses more, they relied less on their car, they reported a, a better sense of confidence in alternate transport and a higher level of well-being. So how that this program has come about is that that original Car Free Me program was modified to better reflect the specific needs of people living well, with dementia. There you go. And when you've now got that evidence, you can say for whoever funds this program... Yeah. Uh, maybe you'd like to, to make some comments about that, whether it's a free program for participants. But I'm guessing you can now say, we have evidence that shows 
Well, if I go to the chemist and I take omeprazole for stomach acidity, for example, uh, there is clinical trials, it's been through safety checks, etc., 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 and I can take that drug without, with reasonable confidence that I'm actually not wasting my money. Mm. Mm. I, I'll just answer, I've just asked that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I guess we're wanting uh, to demonstrate that this program can be funded with the evidence to support that it's going to lead to good outcomes in terms of supporting people to maintain community access, whether they're driving or not, and right. supporting the well-being. So do you want to make any comments about who pays for this? If, if I want to participate... Uh, does it cost me anything? No. So the the research is funded through the NHMRC Boosting Dementia Grants. Uh, so at the moment, there's no cost for participants to be involved in the research. So anyone who contacts us and would like to participate, there is no cost at all to them. Okay. Well, we might give the, the contact details now, and then we'll break to another song. Cool, and we'll give those details again straight after this song break, I think. And Nathan Dakuna and our guests, uh, and yourself, of course. Let's break to a song track here on Fuzzy Logic. We're talking dementia. And a bit of music there to lighten your day here on Fuzzy Logic. That was actually a track called Drive. And it wasn't quite as driving as I was hoping it would be. Uh, anyway, we are talking dementia today on Fuzzy Logic with our guests uh, Nathan Dakuna and Amy Nasio. Now, Amy, we're just going to repeat the contact details for anybody who wants to get involved with Car Free Me. Do you want to go through I that again? I can do that, yes. So the contact details for anyone who's interested in finding out about the program, as I mentioned, that is people who have an early dementia diagnosis, both who are still driving or have retired from driving. Those people can contact the program. The phone number is 0457 779 or they can email me at a.nusio, which is N for November, U double S I O at uq.edu.au and I would be very happy to provide more information about the study. There's no cost involved in the study and all of the program is provided in their own home. So there's seven one-hour sessions uh, that are provided as part of the Car Free Me program and then four interviews as well. That's pretty good. That's pretty good for free. That's pretty good for free. Now, Nathan, uh, you are... For your PhD thesis, doing a similar kind of piece of work, which involves artwork, and right here at the National Gallery of Australia, what's what's that? So my PhD is surrounds investigating the National Gallery of Australia Art and Dementia Program, which has been running for over ten years now at the gallery. Um, it runs weekly, where people living with dementia come into the gallery. Uh, to sit and discuss three to four works of art in the gallery, and it's really just about what they think and feel about the art. It's uh, it's non-confrontational. It's really you can share whatever you like, whether you like the art or don't like the art. And after that, they head to the coffee shop for a bit of a chat and a recap of uh, what they viewed. And so is it? Uh, it's got a social dimension, and as we're saying, Amy, with the mobility of uh, driving, you're getting people. You're stopping people from getting isolated or you're reducing their isolation, is that...? 
That's one part of it? Yeah, that's exactly right. And especially some of these groups that have been going together for quite some time, they really form this tight social bond where they can support each other, they can relate to each other, and they enjoy seeing each other each week and relying on them coming to the gallery to be part of the group. Okay, and is there also the aspect of the they're analysing what they're seeing, maybe not in an art crit- critic kind of a way, but they're discussing what they're seeing, so they're using their intellect, they're exercising their brains. Is that also part of it? Oh, exactly right. And, and before I started being part of the program, I didn't know anything about art, and but certainly that's the same case for some of the participants. They really start to enjoy learning about art, being around art and trying to understand you know, what the artists were thinking when they were creating the art. Oh, and where it fits into art history and how they've done the composition and the lighting and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> okay. How many how many people are involved with this? Um, so currently Dementia Australia runs groups going to the National Gallery, and I interviewed some of them for the first study in my PhD. Um, but the main study for my PhD was we recruited 28 people living in aged care here in Canberra to go be part of this program for six weeks, people who had never been to the program before. Okay, now, if we were to measure our stress level in the studio right now, uh, and I, I have a reason for you know, obviously, Nathan, what the reason is, uh, how, how might I do that? Why is that relevant to watching and looking at art? So the real unique thing that we did in this study was we collected saliva samples from all of our participants um, the day before the first visit, uh, the day after the last visit, six weeks later, and again at a six-week follow-up. So we were looking to measure changes in the rhythm of cortisol across the day. So normally when we wake up, our cortisol shoots up, gets us alert and ready for the day, and then in the hour or so after that, it starts to drop down, and around bedtime, it bottoms out. Uh, But for people living with dementia, that normal rhythm that many of us experience, it's a bit disrupted, so it's a lot flatter. So you don't see that spike early in the morning, and it doesn't drop down quite as much at night time. So we wanted to see if that rhythm would change just from getting out of the aged care community and going to the National Gallery once a week for six weeks. Oh, wow. So it's actually a direct measure of one of the indicators of dementia. Um, I'm guessing that actually measuring dementia without some sort of tests like that is is really difficult right? yeah, because so you, you were saying at the, at the top of the show how dementia is a multifaceted condition right yeah that's right and but measuring the cortisol isn't necessarily a direct measure of dementia severity but it's associated with many of the different behaviors and uh, characteristics of dementia such as uh, frailty um, decreased resiliency, cognitive impairment, and things like sundowning as well, which is an increase in agitation and confusion in the afternoon hours. So this rhythm of cortisol is strongly associated with, with all of it's those things. It's an association. Yes. Yes, and I, I can feel your hesitation there, Nathan, because uh, about three weeks ago in our Ask Fuzzy column, we ran one about uh, GDP, and why GDP is an inadequate measure of the economy. And so if I were to say that cortisol is a an indicator of dementia, well, it's associated and it's one of many things that can happen in the body. Am I yeah. on the right track with that? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's 
Cortisol is measured through the saliva, quite, correlates quite well with levels in the blood. So it makes a really ideal, non-invasive way uh, to get some biological information as opposed to taking blood or using a brain scan and things like that. Saliva is low stress and relatively easy to collect. Well, what about uh, cognitive tests? So are you doing that as part of this research as well? Yeah, so that's right. Um, before and after the study, we did a, a brief cognitive screening measure. Uh, we assessed their quality of life, self-reported quality of life, and also with the study partner, and also their depressive symptoms as well. So um, we are compiling the results at the moment, but we're quite um, pleased with the results that we found. And we did have a finding with the cortisol as well. So one weakness of our study is that we didn't have a control group. Um, so really, we hope that our results can justify a larger controlled trial to really try and get some answers and better define how important it is for people to be able to go to these programs, such as the one at the National Gallery. Yeah, because with a smallish study and it's longitudinal, well, over relatively... Oh, well, how long is the study going? For, uh, so they went for six weeks, and six then weeks. we checked up with them again six weeks later after that. Oh, okay. So in the normal course of things, you should expect very little change in dementia symptoms of a, of a person not in the program over six weeks. It shouldn't usually change very much in a short time like that, right? Well, I'm looking for confounding factors. For yeah, definitely, definitely there's a lot of confounding variables. And while we did have good results, we didn't compare it to a control group. So we can't really tell whether we had good results just because these people were selected based on the likelihood of having a response. So we did ask activities managers to suggest people. So there's some bias there. And what you really need is a control group of matched people to compare between the two groups to see whether the results were actually from going to the gallery or maybe just because these people were you know, maybe down in the dumps a little bit or because they were selected because they would enjoy going to the gallery and maybe had a bit of an interest in going. It's a, it's a good illustration of how this sort of research is really difficult and people who've done social research, the, the so-called Hawthorne studies, the Hawthorne effect is famous. Uh, that's the one where the, there was a factory general electric manufacturing plant and they isolated a bunch of people. They wanted to see the effect of changing the air conditioning. What happens if we improve the lighting? What happens if we change this? and their productivity went up. So they turned the lighting down, productivity went up. They turned the lighting back up again, productivity went up. <laughs> and it turned out what they were doing was they created an elite group. Oh, who are you? Oh, we're, we're the people in the study. We're with the university. So that's, that's tricky, right? Mm. People in your group are now associated with the University of Canberra. Yeah, that's right. And... <laughs> Uh, one problem we actually did have in the study is that we only recruited people with a formal diagnosis. Um, actually, it's estimated around 52% of people living in aged care are living with some form of dementia, but they may not have a diagnosis. So it would be great to be able to extend this type of research to include a much broader range of people within aged care as well. And is the benefit similar to the car-free me in that you can justify why... Uh, spending money on this sort of program is of benefit, is that right? Well, I think the, the good commonality between both programs is getting that face-to-face -face interaction, um, things that maybe some people may not be getting. Um, we definitely do think that there should be art and dementia programs in all galleries and that people, more people should have an opportunity to go to them. So 
if someone can't travel to the gallery due to mobility reasons or things like that, then they'll never be able to experience this wonderful uh, group activity at the gallery. And that's something that we're looking at in the next stage of my PhD, is taking this program from the gallery into aged, aged care so more people can uh, interact with oh. the educators and view art as well. Oh, so it becomes a, a mobile program then. Are, are you looking for community participation? Are you seeking uh, people like uh, Amy is and, or and yourself, of course, for car treat me? Yeah, so we have a small amount of seed funding to do it at one aged care facility. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully one of the ones that I've already been working with will be able to join in on that. But we are writing a larger grant to have a much larger study where what we'll do is project the art via projector onto a wall and people can sit in the groups and we'll have an educator come in and facilitate discussion. It's the same way at the gallery, not quite as uh, grand and prestigious as going to the gallery, but still That's better. still pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty nice. And uh, Yes, I, I used to get a, re- a regular correspondent to my column who, who sadly died a couple of years ago, uh, uh, Bean, Evelyn Bean, that's why she was a regular writer to the paper. She was a real lady. Mm. But uh, they used to have people come in and do talks at the aged care place where she was. And she invited me one day. I didn't end up going, but that would have been really nice. Uh, now, this can be uh, a, a quite a confronting subject because we're looking maybe at our own futures here. What What is it that drew... Uh, you into this area. We'll start quickly with you. We're running short yeah, of time. Absolutely. Too, uh, well, my background's occupational therapy, and there's a strong link with occupational therapy with supporting people to maintain their independence regardless of their age or their health condition. And I. I think just working for a number of years as an occupational therapist, it's very evident that driving is closely connected with that desire to maintain independence so and our you, identity. So you saw firsthand people who were experiencing this? Yeah, absolutely, the practical implications of... And you feel a connection to these people and it's something that you can actually do? Absolutely, and it's a real pleasure to be involved in the project. I hear people's stories and get that chance to work very closely with them and identify their individual goals and support that's, them. That's a wonderful thing. Mm. I, mean, I, I know so many people who are depressed in their day jobs because I go to work, it's meaningless and I'm powerless and it's really boring, but here you are both doing something that makes a real difference. Uh, Nathan, what, what brought you into this Uh, Well, initially I worked in aged care out of high school, but then following that I had a strong family connection with dementia through my grandma and now uh, my mum as well who has younger onset Alzheimer's disease. Um, So that really led to my interest in learning more about dementia, finding out my own genetic status as well. And then it wasn't long after that that I received a Dementia Australia scholarship to investigate this art and dementia program. And so I really just feel lucky to be able to do this type of research and interact with people living with dementia, especially when we were taking them to the gallery just to see how much they did actually enjoy it. Oh, that, that's, that's a wonderful thing. What, what I remember of my own grandparents going into aged care was that there was now a place where old people lived, and it was old people. It was very selective, and, mm. and it seemed to me very strange mm. that, that, that it actually was next to a school, this particular place, so maybe they saw the kids running around, but... You segregating people by age it just seems a very odd sort of a thing uh, that's not was, yeah. that, was that a question uh, I, I'm not, I, I guess that's an interesting reflection and certainly there's a, a lot of work being done to support people to, if 
their preference is to continue living in the community, to fund supports in their own home, to continue living uh, in their own home, and also a lot of work within residential care to make that an environment that duplicates um, a home environment and has well, with, those. With Car Free Me, I guess you're helping a person's mobility the ability to stay at home for longer. Mm. I know with my mum, we're, we're looking at residential care at some point in her mm. future. But if it was me, I want to die in my own home. Absolutely, and everybody has individual preferences, and, and that's a strong part of our program is setting individual goals with the person early in the program to oh, recognise their preference. All right, well, it's uh, time time to wind up. And just very quickly, uh, 30 seconds, Amy, the contact number again? Uh, 0457 Good on you, and a great pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, We'd love to get, well, see how you're going with uh, your dementia studies. Good on you. Time to go. Uh, Catch you later. Thanks, Rod. Thank you.